There are a number of offerings listed in the first number of chapters in this book. Some will say there are five. Some will even go so far as to say that there are six. And some will say that there are four. But as we look at these various offerings, each of them in turn speak in some way of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work for us. And we have not been able to probe into the details of all of the offerings in every aspect. But I'm sure that what we have studied will make us to realize how awful a thing sin is. Because it is a serious thing that needs cleansing, that needs confession. And we've learned as well about the graciousness of our God in forgiving those who trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Set forth in these offerings you have in picture and in type the marvelous love of Christ and His willingness to give Himself wholly and completely for an undeserving people like ourselves. I think the message of the offerings of Leviticus is really this, that Jesus is all that we need. Jesus is represented as our burnt offering. And in that we must yield ourselves wholly and totally to Him. He is also our meal offering or meat or food offering. He's the seed, the corn of wheat, if you like, crushed and put through the fire that we might be able to eat the bread of life and feed upon Him. He is also in connection with that our drink offering, for in the meal offering there was also this other aspect, the drink offering, where He poured Himself out in sacrifice and service, and we're to do likewise in pouring out ourselves for Him and for others. Then, of course, we noted that the Lord is not only our burnt offering and our meal offering, but He is our peace offering. Some refer to it as a fellowship or communion offering. He makes life a joyful feast for us instead of a painful famine, as one preacher put it. The Lord is that which we unite around. He is the focus of our fellowship one with another. And when we talked about the peace offering, we made this point uh, that there was communion between the offerer and God, but also between the offerer and his fellow sinners. Then the Lord, we've been noting recently, is pictured as our sin offering. He is the one who gave himself a ransom for many. He poured out his soul unto death upon the cross. But then he is also our trespass offering. And it is this to which we come now tonight. The Lord Jesus paid the full price for our sins. And when you take all of these offerings together, the nation of Israel had to offer a number of different sacrifices in order to have this right relationship with God. But the Lord Jesus Christ is pictured therein as 
He who offered one sacrifice for sins forever and took care of our sin problem totally and completely. The last two, the sin offering and the trespass offering, really belong together. The sin offering that we've been thinking about for some weeks and the trespass offering, or if you want to call it the guilt offering, were very similar. And they were even governed by the same law, which you will find in Leviticus chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Now, generally speaking, the trespass offering or the guilt offering was for individual sins that affected people and property and for which restitution could be made. You'll see the phrase used, making amends for. While the sin offering focused on some violation of the law that was done without deliberate intent. The sin of ignorance. The trespass offering, if you like, emphasized the damage done to others by the offender, while the sin offering emphasized the offender's guilt before God. And when an offender would come before the priest to make an offering, the priest would examine that offender and he would determine which sacrifice was needed, whether it should be the sin offering or the trespass offering. The trespass offering differed from the sin offering in this way. In the sin offering, as I say, we've been studying it together, attention was mostly upon the persons transgressing. But in the trespass offering that's now before us, attention is upon the offense or the transgression itself. You could say in the sin offering, the emphasis is on what we are as sinners. And in the trespass offering, the emphasis is on what we have done as sinners. So there are two things there. What we are and what we have done. And as the great commentator Frank H. White put it, the the distinction is surely not unimportant. And when seen must tend to deepen our appreciation of the grace which has provided one sacrifice to meet the sin of our nature, as well as those actual transgressions which are its fruits. Really you have a double emphasis upon human sin there. Now when you talk to some people, they they will talk so much about sins that are committed that they will almost give the impression that that is all that we need to confess is actual sins committed. But I am with the preacher who said, Lord, forgive us not only for our sins committed, but the sin of what we are. We are sinners by nature and by practice. We're not only to confess before the Lord the things that we have done that we shouldn't have done, And the things that we should have done, but haven't done. Sins of commission and sins of omission, but also the sin of our nature. And was that not what the Lord Jesus Christ pointed to when he 
spoke about the tree and its fruit. The Lord made it clear that a corrupt tree cannot bring forth good fruit. Neither can a good tree bring forth evil fruit. In other words, the nature of the fruit is determined by the nature of the tree. And the reason that you and I sin against the Lord, the reason that from childhood we go astray from God right away, as soon as we're born, we go in the wrong direction, is because we have a sin nature. And we need Christ to take care of the sin of what we are, as well as the sins that we commit. Now the trespass offering, you'll see this in Leviticus chapter 5, from verse 14, right through to chapter 6 and verse 7. But then you'll see it again referred to in chapter 7. And let me just quickly show you this. In verse 1 of Leviticus 7, likewise, this is the law of the trespass offering. So, here you have some details as to how the ritual was to be performed. The law connected with that. But that trespass offering was needed for two kinds of sins. Chapter 5, verse 15, sins against the holy things of the Lord. And in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, sins against one's neighbor. The first category included offenses or transgressions that involved sacrifices to God, vows, celebrations of special days, and so on. While examples of the second category are given in chapter 6 and verses 2 and 3. We think about the law itself. The ritual involved the sinner confessing the sin. Now if you turn over in your Bible to the book of Numbers, and I'll try to get it right tonight, have the exact uh, book, so that you're not turning to the wrong book of the Bible. Numbers chapter 5 and verse 7. You'll see here... <coughs> Well, we'll read verse 6 for the connection. Speak unto the children of Israel. When a man or woman shall commit any sin that men commit, to do a trespass against the Lord, and that person be guilty, then they shall confess their sin which they have done, and he shall recompense his trespass with the principle thereof, and add to it, and add unto it, the fifth part thereof, and give it unto him against whom he hath trespassed. It's a bit like paying interest on the principle, the sin that you've committed. If you stole something or kept something back, you were to pay that back in full restitution plus the fifth part thereof. If you remember in the New Testament the story of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus promised that if he had stolen from any man and him being a tax collector from the Romans they were well noted for keeping back money for themselves that didn't belong to them he said I will pay it back fourfold that was something that was in keeping with God's law in the Old Testament 
But here we have this ritual. And the priest would value the ram that was brought to make sure of its worth. Make sure the animal was without blemish. Make sure it was a fit sacrifice. Lest the offender would try to atone for his or her sins by giving the Lord something cheap. And by the way, that's something that you and I need to be very careful about. Giving the Lord what's left over. Giving the Lord the dregs. Some people think about that in relation to how they give to the Lord and to the Lord's work. Well, if I've got anything left after all the bills are paid and after everything else that I want to do with my money, then I'll give that to the Lord. I'll give them what's left over. That's not scriptural. We're not to treat the Lord in that way. And here, there was a making sure by the priest that the offerer would not be trying to do this and get away with giving the Lord something that didn't cost him anything. The principle of David before Arona, the Jebusite, when he said, I will offer unto the Lord, I will not offer unto the Lord that which doth cost me nothing. That's a good principle for us to live by as believers. Now the restitution under the law of the trespass offering and the fine that was paid on top of that, that's what you could call it, the principle and then what was added to it as a, as a kind of a fine, they were first given to the priest so that he would know that it was permissible to offer the sacrifice. And you'll see that from Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 10. It says, And the priest shall put on his linen garment, and his linen breeches shall he put upon his flesh, and take up the ashes which the fire hath consumed with the burnt offering on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. I think I have here the wrong reference. But nonetheless, in the book of Leviticus, there is this reference to the priest and how that he is to examine the offering and make sure that it was permissible to offer that sacrifice. If the offended party wasn't available to receive the property or the money, then it could be paid to one of his relatives. Or if no relative was available, it remained with the priest. And you can read about that in Numbers chapter 5, from verse 5 through to verse number 10. If the man have no kinsman, verse 8 says, to recompense the trespass unto, let the trespass be recompensed unto the Lord, even to the priest, and so on. But then there's the lesson illustrated by the trespass offering. We've talked a little about the law itself. There's the lesson illustrated. And what is it? Well, it illustrates the solemn fact that it is a very costly thing for one to commit sin and for God to cleanse sin. Let's be clear about that. It is a very costly thing for people to commit sin and it's a very costly thing for God to cleanse sin. Frankly, our sins hurt God. 
They grieve the Lord. The Bible uses that terminology, grieve not the Spirit of God. In other words, we don't want to bring hurt to the Lord, but that's exactly what our sins do. But our sins also hurt other people. We sin against the Lord and we sin against others. And so when there's true repentance in the heart, it's always going to bring with it a desire for restitution. Or making amends. Now making amends for sin should not be confused with the Romish practice of doing penance. Some people think that if they will say so many Hail Marys, and if they'll do this or that good work or that uh, particular function of charity, that that will impress God and therefore the Lord will forgive them for their sins. Listen, there's no merit in anything that we do by way of having forgiveness for our sins apart from Christ. The Bible knows nothing of doing penance. You don't have to spend a certain amount of time flagellating yourself or wearing a horsehair shirt in order to show the Lord that you're sorry for your sins. However, within the heart of a true believer, if there's repentance for sin, especially if you've committed a sin against another person, there will be a willingness to make amends for that. For starters, we'll be willing to say sorry when that is required. There's an old worldly song which states that sorry seems to be the hardest word. But there's a lot of truth to that. And sometimes it's difficult for us to bring ourselves to that place where we admit that we were wrong and we can just simply say, I am sorry. That's restitution. But sometimes it has to go further than that. Years ago when I was preaching as a young man in the open air at a place called The Mound in the city of Edinburgh, Scotland, a a public preaching place. There were all sorts there, communists and everything else all presenting their message, but we used to hold open air meetings there. And I remember meeting a brother there one night and he testified to some of us that he had been guilty of embezzling money within a company that he worked for, before he was saved. He stole many thousands of pounds, it would be many thousands of US dollars. He was caught, he went to jail. He did his time. You could say, well, that's all taken care of, right? He did his time, the the slate is wiped clean. Well, some would say that, but he got saved when he was in prison. You know what he did when he got out of prison? When he eventually got a job, he began to make efforts to pay back what he had stolen from that employer out of his weekly check. I don't know how he got on. I don't know how long it would have taken him to pay that back. I don't even know that they would have said to him it's necessary to do it. But he wanted to do that. Why did he want to do that? In order to impress God? No. In order to have his sins forgiven by God? No. But to show that his repentance was genuine, that his salvation was real, and where it would hit him in his pocket, it didn't matter because he knew that was the right thing to do, was to make 
restitution. That's a man in whom the grace of God was operating. No doubt about it. Whenever we sin against the Lord, we're going to want to make things right with God, but also with those with whom or against whom we have sinned. Obviously, forgiveness of sin, and we'll talk about that in a little while, it only comes about through the fact that God made His Son our guilt offering, our trespass offering at Calvary. The penalty that we should have paid, He paid it in full. It's all paid for. In that sense, we can't make restitution for our sins, and it's not necessary to do so in a strict sense. Because Jesus paid it all. But nonetheless, in our interpersonal relationships with others, it may be that there are some things that we have to set right in order that we might walk with God, that we might go on with the Lord. And that principle was enunciated by the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Think of these words. And he has this Old Testament ritual and ceremonial in view when he talks about bringing your gift to the altar. Look at this. Matthew chapter 5, from verse 23. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, he's speaking here about the sacrifice that's going to be made, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. And the, the principle there is to seek to make things right with others. And that's always a good thing for us to do. But as we come to think about the lesson illustrated here in the trespass offering, you'll see that in verse 14 of chapter 5 of Leviticus, the Lord begins to speak to Moses, saying, If a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance in the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring for his trespass unto the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flocks with thy estimation by shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary for a trespass offering. And he shall make amends for the harm that he hath done in the holy thing. And shall add the fifth part thereto, and give it unto the priest, and the priest shall make an atonement for him, with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be forgiven him. Now we have talked about the difference between the sin offering and the trespass offering. Uh, one of the other contrast that some writers have made is that on the whole the trespass offering was offered in cases where the sin was more private and confined to the knowledge of the individual now some commentators will disagree with that but that seems to be the way it is the sin was known only to the man himself and hence it was less hurtful in its effects Now, chapter 5, verse 6, is no contradiction to this special use of the word, because the, the Hebrew word here was originally just as general in its sense as 
an alternate word. And in Isaiah 53 verse 10, it's either used in that same general way, or if it's meant to be more special, the sense of it will be this. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sins which no one ever saw him commit. For he hath done no violence, neither was deceit in his mouth. Certain Hebrews view it in that way. Now the sin offering, being more of a sin of a public nature, was on that account more fitted to be the usual type of the offering of Christ. That's how we would think of it, because it was more public and it was more definite. But in the trespass offering, you will see that it was always a ram. Always a ram. Not a bullock, not some other animal, but a ram. A male sheep. The chief of the flock, if you like. And it was thus fitted to remind the people of Israel of the offering of Abraham. Remember that? In Genesis chapter 22, this was no accident. That the Bible tells us there, if you read it, that there was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. What was that ram? That ram was a substitute for Isaac. See, in that passage, Isaac starts out as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the son willing to go with the father, with the instruments of execution. He goes to the place and allows himself willingly to be bound to the altar. Going to be sacrificed. But then the typology changes when there's a voice from heaven to Abraham, don't kill your son, don't put the knife into Isaac. When Abraham looked around, he saw this animal, a ram. That's significant. It was caught by its horns. That would mean that its body wouldn't be ripped and torn so that it would be a fit offering as a sacrifice. Caught by its horns in a thicket. He got that animal. Isaac got off the altar And Abraham offered up that ram in the stead of Isaac. And Hebrews 11 tells us that he received Isaac, typically in a figure in resurrection. He was a type of the Lord Jesus in that sense, coming off the altar. But the ram is the type of Christ as the substitute. Now this ram used in the trespass offering had its blood shed... And it was always put on the sides of the altar, not on the horns of the altar, as in the case of the sin offering. On the sides of the altar. See, in the sin offering, it was of a more public nature. It needed to be held up to the view of all. But here you have something that deals more with private sins. Now, as we... Note here, the Lord said to Moses in chapter 5, verse 15, If a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance, then he is to bring for his trespass the ram without blemish out of the flock with thy estimation by shekels of silver for a trespass offering. There is the price. The price that was demanded by God. Now, we can see the sort of sins that are meant here. And we can refer in that sense to a special case in Scripture. The class of sins here mentioned is 
transgressions in regard to the holy things of the Lord. Now what does that mean? That's the term that's used in the scripture here in verse 15. In the holy things of the Lord. Well, it would tell us, first of all, that our best works are all mixed with sin. No matter what you do in terms of holy activity, it's still mixed with sin. There's no such thing as perfect prayer and perfect worship. There's going to be no perfect worship until we get to heaven. Can I just tell you that? But nonetheless, if you go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 6, we have such a case as the Lord has brought before them here. And this is necessary to explain because as you read through these verses, you might think, well, what's that talking about? What does that even mean? There's so much in the Levitical law that leaves us scratching our heads. and we think, Well, what is that? What does that mean in the holy things of the Lord? Well, go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Just after Proverbs, you see there in chapter 5 and in verse 6, the Lord says this, Suffer not, that means don't allow thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error, wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands. In the context, it is in making vows to God. He mentions the vow there in verse 4, When thou vowest a vow unto the Lord, defer not to pay it, and so on. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. This type of sin that's mentioned in Leviticus chapter 5. The wish to be well spoken of and to become eminent for piety in the eyes of the people and priest, according to Andrew Bonner, led this man while attending public worship in the temple to make a vow with his lips more than he could or more than he really wished to give. He comes to the Lord in the temple and he makes what is essentially a rash vow. He didn't really think about what he was promising. And by making this rash vow, he comes under the sin mentioned in Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 4. But that's not all. When the priest came, and we can compare this with 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 13, where again it says, And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand. It's speaking about what happened under the Levitical law. When the priest came to take his share of the offering according to the law, the man who was offering was tempted to deny that he had actually vowed so much. So he actually tried to deceive the priest about the vow. And thus he fell into the sin of trespass mentioned in verse 15 of this chapter. Leviticus chapter 5 verse 15. A sin in the holy things of the Lord. He falls into that sin of trespass 
inasmuch as he withholds what he promised to the house of God. And God will destroy his posterity unless such a man would forthwith bring the trespass offering. And there are similar cases that I could give you from Scripture. For example, in Exodus chapter 34, it talks about a man eating the first fruits. Or in Deuteronomy 15 verse 19, somebody shearing the firstborn sheep. Things that they were not allowed to do. He's to bring a ram without blemish out of the flock. He's to choose one of the most valuable of his flock. And of course, this is a wonderful thing for us to consider. Because here's the person as well as the price. A ram without blemish out of the flock represents he who was chosen out of the people, one that was mighty. According to Psalm 89 and verse 19. But this offering, as I've suggested, was to be costly. It must not be of an inferior type, but of that sort which were rams of the breed of Bashan. We find that kind of terminology used in the law. I believe it's Deuteronomy 32. Let me see if I've got the right verse here. Verse 14. It speaks there of butter of kine and milk of sheep with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan. They were a particular breed of rams that were much sought after, that were very valuable. I don't know if you know much about shepherding or about sheep, but if you have a very costly ram that will be used for breeding, a ram could cost you many, many, many thousands of dollars. We had a young man in our church in Scotland who worked for a shepherd in the southern uplands of Scotland. That shepherd had over 2,000 sheep in his flock. Think of that. Over 2,000 sheep. And they would be dotted all over the hills and they would have either a little blue marker or a little red or pink marker on their hind end because they had been sprayed by the shepherd showing that they were his. He knew which sheep on the fields were his. And this young man told me about going with the shepherd to one of the markets, one of the sales, like a cattle barn sale, except it was for sheep. And he told me at that time, and we're talking, what, 30 years ago? He told me about the price that his boss paid for a ram at that sale. I couldn't believe it. I was literally, as they say in the UK, gobsmacked. I was breathless. I had nothing to... I couldn't believe it. Really? You would pay that amount of money for a ram? Oh, I said, but you've no idea the type of ram that that is. How excellent the breed is. And the sheep that will come from him will make that shepherd many, many more thousands of pounds this is an investment for him. That's what's being talked about here. One of these special rams, it's a type of Christ. The chief of the flock. And so we're taught here about the costliness of our Redeemer's offering. 
of that sort which were rams of the breed of Bashan. And of course, if you consider the estimation, that's a word that's used here. It wasn't every offering that would answer the great end of this. It had to be a costly, precious offering. Isn't it remarkable when the Apostle Peter is talking about Jesus, he refers to him and to his precious blood. That's the word that's used, his precious blood. We're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And who can tell how high it was estimated in the sanctuary above where not one spot of sin ever found a place in the most secret heart of one ministering spirit. There is no sin in heaven. Bonner said, the question is asked, is this one offering sufficient for the sinner? The Holy One applies the test of his law and measures it by his own holy nature and finds it such that he declares, I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son. Or as it is in another place, I lay in Zion a tried stone, precious Doesn't the Bible say of Christ, he hath magnified the law and made it honorable? And then again, as we look at this, and we're going to have to bring this to a close soon. The question is asked, was it such as reached the case of others? Yes, it was meant for others. He who wrought it out was a surety. His body was prepared for the sake of others. His eyes ran down with tears for others. The words that he spoke that never any other man spoke were for others. He suffered the just for or instead of the unjust that he might bring us to God. Now verse 16 in chapter 5 says this, And he shall make amends for the harm that he hath done in the holy thing, and shall add the fifth part thereto and give it unto the priest. The trespasser is not to gain anything by defrauding God's house. He is to suffer even in temporal things as a punishment for his sin. He has to bring in addition to the thing of which he defrauded God, money to the extent of one-fifth of the value of the thing. So that's what it means by the principle and then that which was added to it. And that was given to the priest As the head of the people, you notice here, he was the head of the people in the things of God. He was representative of God in holy duties. And in a sense, it was to be a double tithe because of the attempt to defraud God. And the Bible teaches us that we can defraud God in this respect. A tithe that was regularly paid was an acknowledgement that God had a right to the things that were tithed. And this double tithe was an acknowledgement that in consequence of this man's attempt to defraud the Lord, his right must be doubly acknowledged. It had to be an adding to it of the fifth part thereof. And we'll never gain by trying to be stingy with God whether it be with our time or our money or our service or our talents we will never gain we will never be blessed by holding back from 
the Lord. That's a lesson that we're taught here. And what we withdraw from God, God will withdraw from us in another way. There's a great preacher in this country called J. Frank Norris. He was a character, shall I say. If you ever read the life of J. Frank Norris, he was the most interesting man. He was involved in all manner of scrapes uh, for the Lord, including gunfights. J. Frank Norris told a story of a man that he knew in a congregation who was a very prosperous farmer. And Norris said that that farmer he knew fine well did not tithe to the Lord. He was very prosperous, very rich, but he never tithed to the Lord. And I believe Norris warned him about that. And told him that he would never prosper, especially as a professing Christian, if he held out and held back from God. Because you cannot gain by robbing God. Malachi chapter 3. Well, Frank Norris told that he was contacted by this farmer one day in great desperation. Wanted Norris to come and see him. He went to see him. And it was near his property where there had been a massive fire. A storm had come up with wind and the conditions were such that the fire just burned everything in its wake. Including his crops and all of his buildings, and his farm, everything belonging to him, was in ashes. And that man with tears, J. Frank Norris testified, said, Mr. Norris, God came and took his tithe. We will never prosper by holding back anything from God. And that's one of the things that we learn here from this offering of the trespass offering. But there's something here that's even more significant before we finish. We've talked about the person, the ram, is representative of Christ. We've talked about the price. But there's also the payment. You'll see that, and we've mentioned this, the atonement had to consist of, number one, restitution of the principal amount, restoring all the things that had been lost, the injury done, made up by the person submitting to give back every item he took away. And then secondly, the addition of more. It was a bit like a fine. The fifth part added to the principle. There had to be a making up of the wrong done by the person suffering loss as a recompense for the evil. And as one writer put it, in these two provisions, we can see set forth symbolically the great fact that God in atonement must get back all the honor that his law lost for a time by man's fraud. And God also must have the honor of his law vindicated by the payment of an amount of suffering. So you have these two things, the principal part and that which was added to it. And Bonner says the act of obedience of Christ gave the one and his passive obedience provided the other. Here you have the full work of Christ represented here. When we talk about the act of obedience of Christ 
and the passive obedience of Christ. It's just a theological distinction that helps us to understand that Christ did something by his life and he did something by his death. We talk about the active obedience of Christ. In those words, he became obedient unto death. In other words, he lived the life that we should have lived but didn't. He obeyed God's law perfectly in every aspect. He never sinned, but more than that, he fulfilled the law of God to the letter in his life. Thereby meriting for us a righteousness that would be made over to us. So that we could be regarded as one who kept the law perfectly. Christ kept the law perfectly for us. That's his active obedience. But then there's the passive obedience of Christ. Even the death of the cross. But as one commentator put it, the Lord was never more active as when he was passive. In other words, when he died on the cross, it wasn't just that he was there suffering passively the punishment for our sins, but he was actually doing something. He was offering to God a sacrifice for our sins. He was offering that holy life unto God. And we saw that represented in the burnt offering and so on. The full dedication of himself unto God. Here we have the Lord Jesus Christ represented here. Paying the full price in his active and passive obedience. Providing for you and for me who believe on him a perfect righteousness. So that we could stand complete before God. Now we haven't time to get into the particulars. Uh, There's so much more here and we may return to this. But there is one thing that I will mention and it's very important that I do so. And it is the proclamation. The proclamation made at the time of the offering of the trespass offering was this. The priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord. Leviticus 5 and verse 7. And it shall be forgiven him for anything of all that he hath done in trespassing therein. That's a wonderful statement. This is the proclamation of God. And within this you have the gospel clearly set forth. The priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord. His sins will be atoned for. And it shall be forgiven him for how much? For anything of all that he hath done in trespassing therein. For any of all the things. Doesn't this proclaim that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin? Every sin had to go neath the cleansing flow. Hallelujah. Rolled away, rolled away, rolled away. And the burden of my heart rolled away. If the Lord should mark iniquity, the psalmist said, who should stand? There's not one of us tonight who could stand up and say, I'm without sin. But the next verse says this, but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. How precious are these words. The priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord and it shall be forgiven him for anything of all that he hath done in trespassing 
they're in. The late Harry Ironside gave a story, an illustration. In order to speak to this, he said, Do these words come to any poor, anxious, troubled soul? Do you wonder sometimes if you've sinned beyond all hope of mercy? Oh, be persuaded. If you will but come to God bringing the trespass offering, that is, putting your heart's trust in the Lord Jesus, looking to Him alone for salvation, every sin will be forgiven. All that you have done will be blotted out forever and be in God's sight as if it had never been. And then he gave the illustration from the ministry of the great Gypsy Smith. He said years ago at the close of a great meeting in Chicago where Gypsy Rodney Smith was the preacher, a strong man came weeping up the aisle at the close of the evangelist's address, sobbing and speaking of the story of his sin and shame. To the preacher who sought to help him, he exclaimed, Oh sir, my sin is too great ever to be forgiven. Quick as a flash, the preacher said, But his grace is greater than all your sin. Dr. Towner, the beloved hymn writer and musician who was standing by, caught those words. And as he walked home that night, they took form in his heart and mind, and he composed the chorus. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. The melody of the verses Ironside says, was also given to him. And he jotted them down when he reached his home. The next day, he gave them to Julia Johnston, who has written so many precious songs of praise, and she composed the verses of the well-known hymn that bears the title of the chorus. And the first stanza reads, as we know, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. And as the preacher said through the years since, that song has borne its story of grace greater than all our sins to tens of thousands of anxious souls. This indeed is the message of the trespass offering. Is there a sin that we might think could never be forgiven? The Lord says in his word, it shall be forgiven for all that he hath done. Everything, it shall be forgiven. Thank God for the forgiveness of sins through the merits of our Lord Jesus.